need to go forward, and forward is about justice for all. Forward is about recognizing everybody. And so that's what Black history is about. That's what American history about is about. And that's what our public schools stand for. One thing about the march that I always like to point out, the interesting thing about it is that women that were involved in the uh, march on Washington, they were excluded from speaking. They would not mm. allow for a woman to speak. And I, I just say that because it's a true statement. We need to keep having concourse chats in airports and we need your help to do it. I know people feel reluctant about this, but it really is fun and empowering. Disneyland's Mickey, Minnie, Donald and Goofy want to join a union. Disneyland employees who perform as various Disney characters at the theme park are seeking to join the Actors' Equity Association, which represents everything from actors on Broadway to strippers in Los Angeles. In fact, yes, that's it. I started first, first with gluing, and it's basically, there's several different types of glue. Stop me if I get too much detail. I can, okay. <laughs> I can blah, 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 blah. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast, weekly produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, AFT's Frederick Ingram on his experience with unions and how he got his current position. Unions and the Civil Rights Movement, how to get it done in 2024. Disneyland actors seek a union, and we meet Damon Walker, a luthier from Durham, North Carolina. This week's featured shows are America's Workforce Radio, a clear and unfiltered voice for the working people of America, the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss, It's Time Live, the official podcast of SkyWest Flight Attendants, Labor Force, a podcast about labor issues and working people, and America Works, an ongoing podcast series from the Library of Congress. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Let's go to uh, line number one and welcome from the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, the Secretary Treasurer of the National Organization, Mr. Frederick Ingram. And I'll tell you, he's got a very impressive resume here. And uh, in honor of Black History Month, we're going to really get into uh, what the AFT is doing to promote Black History Month. There's a lot. If you go to the website, AFT.org, oh my God, there's chock full of information there. But Mr. Ingram, you know, uh, I do this with a lot of the new guests. I'm almost all of them. I try to get a feel on their background and how you got to where you are today. And I was reading earlier that you grew up in inner city Miami. You attended public schools. You became a music teacher. Talk to me about that part of your life. Education, was that something that your parents said, well, you know what, maybe you should find a career in that or maybe get involved in the union. Maybe your parents were involved in the union. Talk to me about that yeah. part, Mr. Ingram. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. You know, I, I oftentimes talk about my background, but not in terms of myself. Yes, I went to college. I was the first in my family to go to college. Education was very important. I found music early in my life. But I think the most important thing that people need to know is that my parents uh, – uh, raised four boys in the inner city of Miami, and my parents uh, never went to college. Uh, they were two city bus drivers, members of TWU, Transit Workers United 291. 
uh, all their careers. My dad drove a city bus for 42 years, only retired during COVID in 2021. And my mother drove for 22 years uh, doing the exact same thing. And so uh, union jobs have always been important to me. Uh, it was how we put food on the table, kept the lights on, uh, and were able to matriculate through school. And uh, as I mentioned, put uh, the first of their, their, uh, their four boys through school, which was me. And, you know, listen, we didn't have a, a, a whole lot, but we had each other. And so uh, growing up in Miami, uh, the weather was great, but uh, the prices as they are now were always high from housing to uh, whatever else uh, uh, down there in Miami. But, but we had a great time. I had a really good upbringing, uh, grew up in the, in the city, and um, uh, here I am. And so always was a union member from day one. Uh, when I graduated college, uh, went right to work and became a member of the United Teachers of Day. Did all of my teaching uh, down in Miami, all 10 years in the classroom, and then uh, was w w was blessed enough to become a union uh, leader and, and become an advocate for uh, the very profession that I love. So let's talk. I mean, we got this attack going on, uh, not just in Florida, but around the country. It's, it's happening here in the state of Ohio as well. But the importance of having a diverse teaching staff and the impact, the impact of black teachers on students and schools today. I'm going to let you pick it up from there because I, I know you're very, very passionate about this issue. So go ahead, sir. I am. And thank you very much uh, for this topic. Listen, having a diverse uh, workforce in any uh, idiom of work is important because that is uh, America. That is what's happening in our country, and that's what's happening in our world. Every single culture uh, is important. Uh, it is the strength of us all, and we know that the impact of having a black teacher not only raises the level of awareness and culture and acceptance of everybody, but it also empowers that young uh, person of color to see themselves in a position of strength and a position of intellect and it opens the doors to them. It really, uh, you know, the Pew study says that 80% uh, of U.S. public teachers identify uh, as white in 2017 and 18, and only 7% is black, 9% is Hispanic, 2% is Asian. And we know that that's skewed as it relates to the demographics in our country. And so the more that we can get our schools, uh, our school employees to look like America, the more, uh, uh, I, I believe, acceptance it will be for everybody. And those black uh, young, uh, young women and, and men in our classrooms need to see themselves in positions of strength so that they know that the sky is the limit for them. And so for far too many places in our country, you can go from pre-K to 12, 12 and, and not see a black teacher. And that is unfortunate not only for black children but for white children because they need to understand that this world is about all of us. It is about all of us collaborating, and that's what schools do. Schools not only teach you the X's and O's of math and reading and science, but it also teaches you teamwork, acceptance, empathy uh, for others who, who have and who don't have and how to work together and how we can all, uh, you know, get this thing we call education and make it better for everybody. And so that's what having a more diverse workforce means to me. In closing here, I'd like to get your message to uh, public school students, white and black today. It, it's sad that you have to overcome these things that are going on. I, I always say it's never a straight line. you got to fight for, for what's right in this country. But uh, your message here in, in the middle of Black History Month. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Listen, Black History Month is something that we ought to hold as a shining light. Um, and there's been much said 
about you know identifying months or weeks uh, when it comes to uh, certain people. But we have a history in this country that we need to talk about that has not always been a very pretty history. It has not always been a straight line, as you say, uh, and it has not always been favorable towards one people or another. But it is our history, and black history is American history. There was a time in this country where people who looked like me were, con were not considered uh, human. There was a time where we were considered three-fifths of a person. There was a time where we couldn't vote. We need to understand that. That's not a condemnation of others. That is an understanding of where we've been so that we don't take this country backwards. We need to go forward, and forward is about justice for all. Forward is about recognizing everybody. Forward is about seeing those young people for everything that they have to offer this country. And so that's what black history is about. That's what American history about is about. And that's what our public schools stand for. We stand for truth and justice and honest history. Thank you so much. Thank you. Frederick Ingram, Secretary Treasurer of the American Federation of Teachers, national website, AFT.org. Drops of water, turn a mill, singling on, singling on. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. I'm Judy Morgan, President Emerita of the American Federation of Teachers, Local 691, and former Missouri State Representative for the 24th District. Uh, you're listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, and our guests tonight are Patricia Jones-Macklin and Michael Bell. Pat, most of us are familiar with the March on Washington in 1963 and Dr. Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. However, many may not know that the organizers of the march were actually A. Philip Randolph and his assistant, Bayard Rustin. The full name of the march was March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. So back in 1963, what was the significance of connecting jobs, a labor issue, and freedom, a civil rights issue? Well... <laughs> It was organized to illuminate the political uh, and social challenges that were confronting African Americans. And one of the things that Mr. Randolph brought forth, there were a lot of industry jobs mm -hmm. and African Americans couldn't get them. And so he just thought that, okay, we need to do something about civil rights. You know, we could not go to water fountains, a lot of places, couldn't eat in restaurants. And then they kind of pulled it together because of the fact that it was all uh, discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so one thing about the march that I always like to point out, uh, it was highlighted, you know, as you said, for jobs and freedom. And uh, 
you know, our civil rights. And But the interesting thing about it is that women that were involved in the uh, march on Washington, they were excluded from speaking. They would not hmm. allow for a woman to speak. Dorothy Height was involved in that, but, you know, they were not allowed to speak. And I, I just say that because it's a true statement. Mm -hmm. They weren't, but it was a job for equality, and <laughs> you know it was a march for equality and all of that. But <laughs> women, y'all can't speak. So, uh, but it was designed to, like I said, to uh, just show that uh, discrimination on the job, discrimination in your everyday life. You know, things had to change from mm -hmm. there. Well, I think it's interesting what you say. At that point in time, probably all women were discriminated against. Of course. You know, it was still a period when we certainly didn't have the rights that we have today. I always found that interesting, <laughs> <Yeah>. though. <laughs> uh, this is for both of you. How does the legacy of A. Philip Randolph live in today's labor movement? Let's start with Michael. I think he lives uh, in a way of... Um, still being out front uh, the voter registration as Pat mentioned uh, we are really heavy in that um, trying to um, come together with the labor community and African American community I think that's a, because there was such a stigma that they got it all wrong the African American community how they looked upon unions so with me and Pat especially Pat where she was working with the AFL-CIO they she really tries to bring the two together again. And that was one of A. Fuller Randolph's strong point because he felt that there were so many, so, so many opportunities if the African-American community would come to know and to break and to uh, merge with the uh, labor union. So I think that's something that we have, have continued to do. Uh, that's so important. Um, and every chance that we get, we try to bring the two together. Mm -hmm. So with the 24, 2024 election coming up, A. Philip Randolph doesn't endorse candidates, right? As, as an institute, you all don't endorse Just candidates. Just the issues. Just the issues. Mm -hmm. and, but you do do a, a lot of work in, ta in terms of voter registration and uh, getting people out to vote, right? right. Talk, talk some about that. And we have done candidate forums, too. Okay. We, we have supported that uh, along with us and other uh, fraternities, black fraternities. We have put on candidate forums to bring um, issues to the community. And you, uh, one time you talked about registering people at bus stops, right? We did that back in the day. We did yeah. it. I thought that was very interesting. We stood outside the bus stops, and as soon as people got off the bus, we registered them. Very interesting. I think it's a good idea. I mean, you have to get them where you can, even though election board has rules about things. But, yeah, that bus stop thing, and we could still do that. That was, that was a good thing. The only thing we didn't realize, it was in front of a bail bondsman place, and we couldn't figure out why we were getting all these people. Coming up on It's Time Live, we'll be talking about supercharging the SkyWest AFA campaign, plus updates on base events and, of course, much more. That's why we voted my AFA. That's why we voted my Welcome to It's Time Live. I'm Galen from the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, here with Salt Lake City-based SkyWest flight attendant, Jackie Crossley. Thanks, Galen. 
Hey, uh, we missed the recording of our podcast on the 22nd because we were right in the middle of an amazing 10 days of action last month. So let's catch up. Each of the 10 days focused on actions each of us can take every day to grow our SkyWest AFA campaign and get to a union vote this year. Thank you so much to all of the SkyWest flight attendants throughout the system who stepped up to help share information and answer questions during the concourse chats at many of our bases, including San Francisco, Phoenix, Boise, Salt Lake, Seattle, LA, and San Diego. Some bases did multiple dates and some only had two or three of our SkyWest flight attendants on site, but they really stepped up and shared information talked to many of our flight attendants and got hundreds of cards signed. This is what it takes and we need to keep doing it every single month. By doing concourse chats, it gives us the opportunity to take a moment to connect with each other. It helps us share the understanding of how our union will provide us a real voice at SkyWest. Our union is us. It's going to be run by us and our leaders that we choose will be accountable to us, not management. That is so amazing, Jackie. And, you know, as a reminder to everybody, it is everybody's legal right to wear their union pin. So yep. wear that pin proudly. It is not a target. It's a shield <laughs> is the uh, the saying that we like to remind ourselves of. So let's talk about how to make this happen. So first of all, we need to keep having concourse chats in airports and we need your help to do it. I know people feel reluctant about this, but it really is fun and empowering. You meet new flight attendants that you didn't even know in your base. Um, you, you know, if you've got long sits in an airport, you can use that time productively and, um, you know, we'll help to organize people in that base to meet you on your break, or maybe AFA helpers to meet you on your break. Whatever it takes, if you're sitting ready reserve and you know, you're know you already there in uniform with a bag, don't sit in the crew lounge, You know, meet up with somebody. We'll, we'll help to organize that so that your time is effective at the airport and you're talking to our flight attendants and sharing information. Also, we need to continue to get more of our flight attendants involved in the campaigns. So you helping with concourse chats helps. Um, also, we need you to ask your friends to get involved. It really is about your sphere of influence. We need you to think about who, you know, who you're connected to on Facebook, who is in your phone contacts, reach out to them and share that we are mobilizing, that we are organizing for a, an AFA union and ask them if they want to help. Um, we really, really need to push away the fear and hold strong to the power of our rights to organize. Well, thank you, Galen, for your time. It was great talking to you. That is all the time that we have today. I really hope that this lights a fire inside of you like it has me. And until next time, fly safe. Welcome to the Labor Force Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Struken proud member of New York State United Teachers. And from CNN, Disneyland's Mickey, Minnie, Donald, and Goofy want to join a union. Disneyland employees who perform as various Disney characters at the theme park are seeking to join the Actors' Equity Association, which represents everything from actors on Broadway to strippers in Los Angeles. 
The union aims to represent 1,700 character and parade performers. Instead, after three days of collecting cards signed by employees, it already has more than the 30% support needed to file for a representation vote with the NLRB, but it said it's waiting till it has a support of at least 60% before filing for such a vote or seeking voluntary recognition of the union by Disney. Performers doing the same work at Disney World in Orlando, Florida, are already in a union and have been for years. And until recently, the Disney World performers were paid more than their Disneyland counterparts, according to the union. The union contract reached between a coalition of unions and management at Disney World last year pays the performers a minimum hourly wage that ranges from $21.30 to $23, according to the union. The Disneyland performers have been getting $20 an hour until the union organizing drive began late last year. The minimum pay then went up to $24.15 an hour, according to the union. But the cost of living is significantly greater in Orange County, California, where Disneyland is located, than in Orlando. According to data from the Council for Community and Economic Research, the cost of living is 50% greater in Orange County. Housing costs, which are more than twice as expensive, are the primary reason, but prices are higher across multiple categories. There are more than 21,000 Disneyland employees, who are referred to as cast members by the company, who are represented by more than a dozen unions. Those unionized jobs include everything from retail and food service workers to security guards, hair and makeup artists, and pyrotechnic workers, but not the performers who dress up as characters such as Mickey and Minnie Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy, and interact with visitors. They love working at Disneyland. It doesn't mean they don't need enough money to live on, Kate Schindel, president of Actors' Equity, told CNN. The 51,000-member union is 111 years old, making it one of the oldest American unions outside of railroads. Everybody recognizes that Disneyland is a special place, she added, but magic alone doesn't pay the rent. We believe that our cast members deserve to have all the facts and the right to a confidential vote that recognizes their individual choices, Disney said in a statement. Until next time, take care and stay Union Strong. Welcome to America Works. Interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross, and this America Works episode features excerpts from a longer interview with Damon Walker, a luthier or string instrument maker in Durham, North Carolina. Mr. Walker, or Dr. Bass as he's widely known in the business, makes and repairs double or upright basses. He was interviewed for the library by folklorists Katie Kloon and Julia Gartell as part of their occupational folklife project, Fixing, Mending, Making New, North Carolina's Repair Professionals. He begins by explaining how he became one of the very few African-American luthiers in the United States. It's basically a movie. It really is that simple. It's that um, I, I was uh, a little bit lacking direction, um, and I was going a lot of different uh, directions at the same time. I love 
uh, art. I love form. I love design. So for those reasons, put together with some others, uh, including my appreciation for structure, I was an architecture student. But at the same time, I was also in my job building furniture. I knew I had a passion for wood, just the smell of it, for working with wood and everything. I had a knack. I can even pick out the very dead center of a piece of wood, a plank of wood, or anything like that, and almost always be like correct to the millimeter. Anyway, I just had this appreciation for the craft of building. And third to those, a musician. I was a bass guitarist at that point, aspiring to the upright. I loved uprights to see them, to hear them, but I hadn't even touched one by this point. And、um, I just was looking for that bottom sound and that big acoustic sound, whereas a Bass guitar. If you play it in a room without an amp, it's just bounce, bounce. <laughs> and that's all I had for the first five years of playing. I got an amp way later down the road.、Uh, and it's about that point that I saw this movie, City Slickers, with Billy Crystal. And、uh, I, I'm just that kind of person. I'm always looking for messages and signs and anything. In this case, a comedy. <laughs> and、uh, and somebody's trying to advise Billy, basically, Curly the Cowboy out in the desert. And he's telling him, you know, you're making everything so much more complicated than it has to be. Just pick one thing, and everything else will fall into place. But by about a couple of weeks into this, thinking about it, talking to my best friend, it occurred to me: No, I think it means I'm supposed to pick one thing that has pieces of all of these in common. So you got your design stuff, the wood craftsmanship, the musicianship, trying to get up to upright. Hey, maybe I can design and build these guys. I never even heard of luthery. It just I came to those that order of things and searched for a shop. And it's at that point that I found David Gage in、uh, Manhattan. He is world famous, and、uh, I got to、um, go down and convince him to give me an apprenticeship. <laughs> Part of it is sheer luck. He wasn't exactly looking to hire anybody, but、um, my last name happened to be the name of the street that he's on, Walker Street. <laughs> and、um, he liked my personality. I was affable, etc., approachable. He liked the fact that he wouldn't have to start from scratch with teaching me, because. Of what I've already been doing with furniture making, we use some of the same tools and understandings. So, for those reasons and some others, I think also to have、uh, a darker presence <laughs> in a shop that serves the whole music community, including a lot of jazz musicians, but no such presence in the shop. I represented an easy way to get to that point with my little bit of background, and so it became clear within the first couple of months to them and me that this was my passion. This is where I needed to be. I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I think I started with gluing first. In fact, yes, that's it. I started first first with gluing, and it's basically there are several different types of glue. Stop me if I get too much detail. I can, okay, <laughs> I can go especially the more nervous I get. But so there are several types of glues all involved with these instruments.、Um, basically, the The differentiating factor is what do we intend to have reopen again, and what do we never want to open again. <laughs> so,、yeah. things like the very front of it and the fingerboard, the long flat surface up front,、um, things like that, we expect to have to reopen at some point. I have some other luthier open to work on the instrument. For that reason, we use a hide glue, which you can control the strength of. It's just made from. Animals, unfortunately, <laughs> the poor guys. There's some from rabbits, some from horse, you know. So in, our, in the shop, I, at David Gage's shop, we call it sopa de caballo, horse soup, <laughs> and I love the smell of it, really. But anyway,、um, 
it was around then that it occurred to me I could do doctor calls like these two for medicine. And uh, now I can charge a premium because you're paying for the benefit of somebody come all the way to your home so you don't have to schlep across all of New York with a base on a subway or whatever else. And so that's where the doctor-based moniker was first born. It was because I couldn't get a commercial space. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross. On behalf of the American Folklife Center, thank you for listening to America Works. Hey, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a very small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 150 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always and forever, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Mm-hmm.